William Cooper was born in 1731, and he died in 1800. His father was the rector of a village church, and he was one of King George II's chaplains. But despite that, William actually grew up without any kind of saving relationship to Jesus. His mother died when he was really young at six. His father sent him away uh, to boarding school, and he suffered uh, incredible bullying and emotional turmoil in that season. In 1763, he was 32, and he was on the rise of his career. He was made the clerk of journals in the parliament, and with that great career advancement, uh, a great fear struck William Cooper, too mu so much so that he had a serious mental breakdown. On three different occasions, he tried to take his own life. Uh, eventually, he was put into an asylum. There he met a Christian, and that's actually how he came to know Jesus. Yet even as he walked with Jesus, he suffered deeply and darkly. One of the last things he ever said, and this was a person who at this time knew of the Lord Jesus, he still said, I feel unutterable despair. He wrote some of the greatest hymns of the church, but also he wrote things with such darkness. And so he wrote songs like, There is a fountain filled with blood, and we, we proclaim and we sing that in the church still today with great joy and hope, and yet he can write things like this. Hatred and vengeance, my eternal portion. Scarce can endure delay of execution. Wait with impatient readiness to seize my soul in a moment. Damned below G Judas, more abhorred than he was, who for a few pence sold his holy master, twice betrayed Jesus me, the last delinquent deems the profanest. Man disavows and deity disowns me. Hell might afford my miseries a shelter. Therefore, hell keeps her ever hungry mouths all bolted against me. So one person in Christ at this time can write such words, so dark and so despairing, and yet at the same time has seasons and write words of great celebration and trust and worship. And that's the tension that I think we need to learn how to walk with. And often we don't know how because we want to very quickly jump to the seasons of great hope and joy. If Job were written by Disney, it would have jumped from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 42, where Job is restored after losing everything, and flashing on the screen would just be happily, and you know the words. But in between chapter 2 and 42, we have Job expressing himself in words that are actually quite shocking for someone who is described as having integrity and blameless relationship with the Lord. He's angry. He's frustrated. Chapter 3 is one of the darkest expressions, not only of Job, but maybe of the entire Bible. Today is not going to be a happy sermon. It's one of the darkest places. It's, it's, it reminds me of Psalm 88, where the last phrase of that psalm can sometimes be translated, darkness is my only friend. Some of you understand, as you were hearing or reading Job chapter 3, this exact feeling. You heard the poem about hatred and vengeance and being even more hated than Judas, and you understand that feeling. Some of you are right there. Maybe because you're in the midst of a recent change of circumstance or 
the pains of past valleys and storms are still lingering. How do you handle darkness and loss and suffering? What words do we have? What, what do we do with that emotional, overwhelming feeling? Maybe you've said things in solitude or thought things in the silence of your mind that you wonder if you could say out loud. You've had outbursts in private or even public and you vent. You yell and you never thought that following Jesus would ever lead to a feeling or a circumstance like this. Because some of you are there. Or some of you have friends who are there and you are wondering, what do I say? What do I do? Others of you aren't there. But you're close or the time may come. We need Job chapter 3 to remember that when we walk through those kinds of seasons ourselves, that we are not alone. Other people have gone this way. Not only Job, we read in, uh, about Elijah and First Kings, where he also wishes similar kinds of experiences in his life. Paul in the New Testament tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we are to learn how to weep with those who weep. In such a passage like Job chapter 3 calls us to learn to weep with those who weep. We're actually going to talk more at length in the next few weeks about how to respond to people who are in those dark places as we go through that cycle of speeches between Job and his three so-called friends. But today I, I want to spend time just kind of anchoring ourselves in his words and what it means to weep. What, what kind of words can we use to express ourselves when we are in those kinds of circumstances? And so we're going to spend our time today looking at some of the context and then look uh, intentionally at Job's language of weeping and then kind of unpack that for us. How do we uh, take that to our own lives today? The context first. If you remember, in the last couple of weeks, we were described of a man who had everything going for him in his life. Posterity, ten children. He had property, he had health, and yet because of an unknown circumstance and conversation that he did not know of, everything is taken from him. The Satan attacks him because he's questioning the glory of God and questioning if Job really has a relationship of loving God for God or just because of God's blessings. And Job goes through this experience very much so that he feels like he has actually died. We read in chapter 2, 11 to 13, his friends appear. That's actually at least a, a first reading, a good sign. He had friends who cared deeply about him, who were willing to travel to see him. His three so-called friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, they come to comfort Job. They go through this cycle, as we're going to see, back and forth. Three cycles between these friends, and then a very young person who is waiting his time uh, comes up, Elihu, and he gives another speech. And they try and comfort him, and at least that intention is good at this point. Verse 12, we read, they don't recognize him. Maybe you've been with people who have suffered deeply, and it's, it's affected them so much so that their emotional state begins to affect their physical state. And this, is, um, this makes sense, right? Because we are complete beings. You cannot separate the intellect from the body, from the emotions. We are complete beings. And so everything affects every part of who we are. And so he has changed. His body not only is pain so much, but his despair has caused him to be unrecognizable to his friends. Maybe he's thinned out significantly because of his despair and not being able to eat because of his sadness. Darkness and depression, they change you. 
You sit in that state long enough, it begins to actually feel like your humanity is being stripped from you. This is where Job finds himself. And let me just say something to that nature about those who maybe in our church or related to people who are connected to our church. Depression is a very real thing that affects people, affects people emotionally, biologically, it affects you physically. And we need to learn how to be with people who are exactly like that. And as a church, that's something we need to grow in as still. And this is why as a church, we, we set aside resources aside to assist people who are going through uh, depression or various other mental health challenges. Because we recognize as a church community, this is something that we care about. And we are not experts as pastors trained in this area, but we want to walk alongside and provide resourcing and support for those who are in those states because we recognize this is a very real circumstance that people go through. The three so-called friends, they, they weep, they tear their robes, they throw dirt on their heads. In many ways, this is identifying with Job, what he has been doing, and they do this for seven days and seven nights. This, that's how severe the loss is. I don't know if you've ever sat in silence for any period of time, let alone seven days. Last year, I did a, a silent retreat for about 36 hours, and 36 hours was very, very long. Seven days and seven nights is incredibly long. They have nothing to say. On the one hand, many people read this, and even my understanding of this, especially knowing what they're about to say to him, is so terrible. They read this silence and this circumstance positively because at least they're ministering through presence and identifying with him. That's one good thing there. But on the other hand, this silence reflects the tragedy. They are identifying with Job, but actually, if you read the context of what they're actually doing, this is an action of someone who responds when someone's dead. They don't even recognize Job. Basically, they're responding because very much like Job is actually already gone. Their silence may not actually be the silence of sympathy. It actually may be the silence of emptiness and futility because, in other words, there's literally nothing to say to someone who has lost so tragically. That's the context. We're going to spend the next few weeks kind of looking at those series of speeches, learning how to speak, and sometimes, more importantly, what not to say to other people. Because as you read those speeches, what you'll discover is, man, Christians say all those kinds of things all the time. And actually, the Bible tells us we, those are things we should not be saying to people who are suffering. And we need to learn how to not say those things. It's an interesting, right? This is not just a modern-day problem of Christians saying very foolish things to people who are suffering. This has been going on for all of time. But let's look at how Job weeps, because I think this helps us to have language. In fact, if you are going through those circumstances or have someone who is going through a similar Job-like circumstance, I think the words here may be not only helpful to understand that you're not alone, but maybe give you words of what you can say in your relationship to God or even what you can verbalize out loud to yourself. Interestingly, verse 1 to 3, look at what it says. After this, we don't know how long, but at least after those seven days, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. So interesting, right? The very accusation that the Satan was accusing Job of saying, if God allowed Satan to take away everything, was that he would curse God. And we see that he never curses God. In fact, he blesses God. But he does curse something. 
He doesn't curse God. He curses his own existence. He curses the day of his birth. This is very strong, shocking language. Those of you who have had the experience of getting pregnant, having a child, the birthday of a baby is always great celebration, isn't it? Great expectation, great joy. I can still remember that whole entire experience like I was there. If I think about it, it's so visceral, it's so real, it's so joyful. I can think of the emotions and experiences of holding this innocent, beautiful daughter of mine. Twice I got to experience that amazing joy. And if you are the kind of couple who doesn't ask to know the gender and you, you find out the moment of birth, that's so exciting, isn't it? You're just excited to have a healthy birth child, but then you find out it's a, it's a boy or it's a, it's a girl. It's all joy and celebration. There's almost nothing on earth that rivals the hope that can occur when you have the hope of holding a newborn child. But for Job, where he's right now, as he thinks about his existence, he's like, that day is terrible. This is only despair. Job prays in his words, in poetry, that his birthday be removed from the calendar. Strike the day of my birth, the day of joy for my parents, the day of joy for my existence. Strike it as if it never happened. He wants the roots of his very existence to be recaptured by dark, death and darkness. Not only the day of his birth, he actually mentions the night of his conception to be removed. This is how serious his darkness is. Parents who experience sexual joy and the excitement of discovering that they are pregnant, that night in which two DNA are fused together and he's brought into existence, this moment of joy in God's sovereign creative work, he wants that to be gone, removed. Job cannot rejoice at this. It is all too painful. He wishes God to rewind the tape of creation back to the point where he can undo his very existence. He says it this way in verse 8, let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. We'll come back to Leviathan later in the book of Job. It's a symbol in the ancient Near East of chaos. Job is borrowing from his pagan cultural background, the, the god of chaos, would he be rosen up by those magical shamans of his time, basically, and say, can those people rouse up this Leviathan, this god of chaos, to remove his day of existence? Now, he should, should he be saying that? Should he, he invoke pagan gods and the god of chaos? Probably not. But he's venting. He's lamenting. Maybe you've wished that you were never born. Maybe you've said to yourself, or maybe you've said out loud to a friend, it would be better if I never existed. Why didn't I just die at birth? What's the point of my existence if all there is is going to be this despair? In fact, his only hope is non-existence. It says in verse 5, let gloom and darkness, deep darkness, claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That word claim it in verse 5 
is also translated redeem or save. We use that to describe God's saving work. Like God redeemed Israel out of Egypt from slavery. He's saying the only salvation that he has is actually to be removed from existence. His salvation is found not in the hope of a future, but in the hope of not existing, but changing his entire past. Interesting and horribly painful. He presents the undoing of himself, the undoing of very creation. If you trace down, and scholars have looked at this, and I, I try to look at it, it's amazing in the beauty of poetry, even though it's so dark. He actually lists the creative elements, the description of his undoing of creation in the same exact way God describes the creation of the world. And so every day that God creates, he's writing it in such a way to parallel. Can you undo me and undo everything? That is his despair, where his only hope is undoing. We read Job, and you have, have to realize, this is an ache so deep, he can't go on. And ironically, he, in expressing this, even though it's expressed so darkly and so negatively, is still responding to a high view of God, because he's still acknowledging that God is the one for which he exists. Notice, actually, throughout the entire book, and even here, he never asks for a restoration of his stuff that he lost. He's still, and actually, this is why he's called the greatest man of the East. He has such a blameless attitude. Even though he's in such despair, he's still able to see God as that way, even though it's so dark and negative. It's the opposite side. He expresses himself by asking why questions, and maybe you ask a lot of why questions. I ask a lot of why questions. And these words actually give me words to ask when I experience those kinds of things. He says, why, in these ways, verses 11 to 23, look how many times he says, why. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Babies are often born still, or the childbirth being very dangerous in that time. And he's like, many children die that way. Why didn't I just die that way? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? And he's saying, why did I have this lovely childhood where I was welcomed on my father or mother's knee? Why did my mother's breasts nurse me and nourish me? Why? Because sometimes it doesn't. Why did all those things go well? Well, why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Verse 16 or verse 20, why is the light given to him who is in misery or in life? to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Verse 23, why is light given to man whose way is hidden? Job can only look back because hope and future in God, looking forward, he sees nothing good there. Future gone because God has left him. That's his experience, that's his feeling. That's what he's going to express in the next couple of weeks. That's why, that's how Job weeps. That's how he laments. This is, in many ways, as we read this, kind of shocking to the modern Christian, isn't it? Are we, is it okay to say these things? Is this the experience of someone who truly knows God? Or is this someone who's wandered from God? What do we, what do, we do with this language? Let me kind of bring this together for us today. And how do we understand such Lamenting. First thing I would like to say about this, kind of bringing this together, is faithfulness to God is compatible with this kind of shocking lament. 
you can hold integrity with God and say these things. That is a tension that does exist. I think too often we, we want the Christian life to exist in this happy-go-lucky experience that has nothing of despair, nothing of darkness. The Bible never tells us that we only exist in blessing, in praise, in worship. Those things exist in tension. We see that throughout the scriptures. And so if you're someone who experiences life more maybe on the side where it feels more dark, and you're often pulled to this side where it seems more happy, but you aren't able to express it. Notice, you can have those things in tension. The scriptures describe faithfulness to God is compatible with lament and darkness. A lot of people, when you first read Job chapter 3, it almost reads like a different Job. I mean, how does someone who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, who responds to the challenge of cursing God from his wife, and he says, shall we not receive evil along with receiving good, who is described as never sinning, who God says is my servant, who he's very proud of? Is this the same Job who says the things he does in chapter 3? Yes. It's the same Job. This is the real, authentic expression of a man who is affirmed by God throughout the entire book. And so it means that faithfulness to God leaves room for this kind of lamenting. Being a Christian does not mean we need to put on a happy face when things are terrible. We don't always have to be able to praise. I think it's something we need to learn because in modern Christianity, it, it just dismisses emotional grief much too quickly. When people are in loss and suffering and despair and depression, we too quickly want to move past it in which we are not able to acknowledge people's genuine, real grief and suffering. A suffering Christian is compatible with a Christian who is faithful. There is room for a Christian to say shocking things, to vent. Notice that even when he calls for Leviathan to kind of rose up and remove him from the earth, God never says to him, don't ever say that, Job. God doesn't just jump in there and say, that's, that's wrong theology, Job. Right? He's affirmed throughout this entire book. Sometimes you're going to have brothers and sisters who are going through really hard things who are going to say crazy things. And actually, I think this is a good lesson. Our immediate response to someone who's grieving and saying kind of really wrong things, actually, our first thing with them isn't to correct them. And I think this is something we're going to learn in the next couple of weeks. One of the things that Christians often do when you experience someone who's going through deep pain and they're just saying, they're cursing, they're saying terrible things. And our first reaction is, oh, you shouldn't say those words. You, you can't think that about, God never does that with Job. He says, rile, rile up this God of chaos. There's room for things that are expressing our deep pain. He doesn't rush in. God doesn't say, Job, I'm going to condemn you right there. Should Job be saying these things? That's an important question to ask. If your conclusion is he should not be saying these things, then you should also then conclude that he would be corrected from saying these things. But he's never. And so my conclusion is, well, even though these things are expressing things that are theologically maybe even incorrect, that saying those things out loud in this way, in the way that Job is expressing himself, is actually, there's room for that kind of expression. 
That's why you see throughout the scriptures, in the Old Testament especially, these expressions of lament that are shocking to us. How can you pray, dash the enemy's babies in the rocks? Where's there room for that? And we would just judge, maybe some of us too simply, that that's just stuff in the Bible we shouldn't listen to anymore. But I think, actually, the Bible is very honest and real. If you go through dark things, there's room for expressing those things. There's freedom in the lament. Johnny Erickson Tata, she became a quadriplegic. She's a believer. She dove off a cliff that was too shallow. Some of you are very familiar with her story, but... Uh, maybe I've even quoted this in the past, but I always come back to this quote, uh, helpful for me. She says this, as she's processing her life and as she processed her grief. For some odd reason, it comforted me to realize that God did not condemn me for plying him with questions. He wanted me to express the true contents of my heart, to dump out all the jumbled, jagged shards of my soul before him. I didn't have to worry about insulting God for my outbursts in times of stress, fear, and pain. My distress wasn't going to shock him. God, according to Job, is never threatened by our questions. You cannot surprise God with the laments that come out of your heart. I think we need to understand that there's room for this kind of despair and expression that is compatible with someone who still wants to pursue the living God and not so quickly get over the fact or correct or fix people who are in those spaces and hijack this expression and the language that is there. In fact, I think we need to learn from language like this because it will help us when we get to those seasons to have language to express the things that our hearts want to express, but we cannot find the words to express. Second, related to that, if we need to understand that there is compatibility with faithfulness to God in this kind of language, is we as, a, as people and we as a church need to make room for people who are in this space. We should not be so quick to judge people who are in these dark places. We need to be sensitive to people when they're in this space for what they say or don't say. We re recently went to a, a trip to visit family in Taiwan, where my family is from, and on the flight there, there was a lot of turbulence for a good hour. It was quite significant. It was shaking quite a, quite a big deal, and it, it sadly also happened when we had the food right in front of us, and then they said all the people had to, all the air attendant, flight attendants had to sit down, so we have this food, but it's shaking the plane. Adjacent to me, not far away, there's this individual, who's a young individual, but his fear was tangible. Like every time it shook, he would hang on to the, the chair in front of him and like shake. I'm like, this, that's freaking me out. I, I wasn't really that afraid of the turbulence, but this guy like this, every single time it would stop and it'd be calm for a little bit. And then it would shake and he'd be shaking. And it began to freak me out. And I began to wonder, is the life vest underneath my chair? I don't know if you ever, have you ever thought of that? I don't know if you ever listened to the flight attendants when they're giving you emergency information anymore, right? How many of us have ever wondered if the life vest is actually under your seat? In fact, every single time, I kind of just don't pay attention to it anymore because if we're coming crashing down at 500 miles an hour from 40,000 feet, the life vest isn't going to do anything for me. So I don't ever wonder, but that's the time. I saw this guy shaking, and I'm like, is the life vest there? And I, and I felt underneath my chair to make sure it was there. Got freaked out. I never checked 
before. I realized as I thought about that. I've never checked to see if a life vest is there before because I've never been that afraid. I may need it someday. It's possible that we might need to make an emergency landing on the water or we might actually crash into the water. I can't imagine what the people felt like who were riding that Alaska flight where the door just flew off. That's exactly what I would have done. I'd be like, where's my life vest? But you, even though most of us, probably 99% of us, maybe 100% of us, when you take a flight, do you ever feel under your seats to make sure the life vest is there? Probably almost none of us ever do that. But you'll be glad it's there the day you need it. I'm really glad Job chapter 3 is in the Bible. I may not have paid attention to it ever before. I may never experience what Job ever experiences in chapter 3. Maybe I don't ever need to curse the day I was born or conceived, but some of you have, and some of you will. And you will be glad to know that your laments are okay. And we as Christians, as we have Christian friends, or even non-Christian friends who go through Job-like situations, we don't need to correct them so quickly. We need to make room for that kind of lament. When people lament, our job isn't to fix them. This is also true of the, not only our relationships interpersonally, but also true of the church gatherings. This is why we cannot just sing and pray and talk about praise in the church because it's not always happy. It's not always great. There are times nationally, there are times in our local church where, you know, people will say, like, the best is yet to come. And someone will say, you may feel by your circumstance or something in life or the nation or the world, then no, I don't feel like the best is yet to come. And it's not like you dismiss the theology that you have about Christ's return in that moment but that does not honor the experience of your time. And so as a church, you don't always have to. I want to give you permission right now. You don't have to always sing. Because sometimes we will sing praise to which you cannot sing. And that's okay. Sometimes we will pray things to which you cannot pray yet. Sometimes we will say things like, the best is yet to come. We believe in a resurrected Jesus and you cannot affirm that yet in your emotions or your words because you feel like you wish you never existed like Job. We need to make room for the people who are in seasons of lament. Last thing to bring this all together is that Job, and we'll see this again and again throughout the book of Job, Job's loneliness, his darkness, it is a shadow for something to come that he never gets to experience. He experiences loneliness and darkness and despair that foreshadows what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows of Job 3. He knows what it's like to lose all sense of God's presence in love as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Job is not forsaken, but Jesus is completely forsaken. We have a Savior who understands what it's like for God to completely abandon him, 
and leave him. What a savior. So if you find yourself in a dark place, one thing we do have that Job never has is an understanding of Christ. And then maybe that, not something that you can quickly run to at this season. Maybe you're still in this place of lamenting and venting, and that's okay. But as you wander through that darkness, remember that that cave is never completely dark, even if the glimmer of light is miles and miles away. Job never gets an answer to his why. And actually, as you go through seasons that you may experience in life, there may be why questions that you are never going to receive an answer to in this life. But we, like Job, will always have the answer of who? We know the answer of who? We know who went to the depths for us. And may that be enough in those seasons of lament. Let's pray. And would you take a moment to sit before the Lord? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully for, with me. Father, we long for that kind of transition and transformation from the how longs and whys to sing. We want that, Lord. Help us to be patient with that time, that distance, that those years that may exist between verse 4 and verse 5 of Psalm 13. Father, would you be with those who are in seasons of despair like Job? Would you affirm them that it is okay to say what it is that is coming from their heart? Especially if they're still saying it to you. Father, would you teach us to be patient, to be slow to speak, and quick to listen. May your Spirit make us wise in our suffering and wise in our speaking and our silence. Amen.